There is nothing as final as death. Especially a death that is both violent and visible. And death by crucifixion was very violent and very visible. As the recent film, The Passion of the Christ, showed graphically to those who could bear to watch it. In the case of the condemned man, Jesus of Nazareth by name, his crucifixion had been preceded by a brutal flogging with a vicious whip embedded with metal and bone that had turned his back into a ploughed field. In many cases, such treatment preempted the need for any further means of execution. So it was no wonder then that in this case the victim was pronounced dead after just six hours nailed to his cross. A fact confirmed by the thrust of a soldier's spear through the side of the body into the pericardium and the heart itself, which resulted in a sudden flow of blood and water. And so with the intervention of two influential supporters of the dead man, and by permission of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, once he had confirmed with the centurion that the victim really was dead, the body was handed over, hastily wrapped in bandages and spices, and interred in a tomb, hewn out of rock, in the garden of a rich man. And also, on the orders of Pilate, this time on the intervention of opponents of the dead man, a huge stone was rolled against the entrance to the tomb, and a detachment of legionaries placed on guard outside the tomb. No scope then for any surprises, and no sign of anything unexpected, as body, tomb and soldiers remain undisturbed for the next 36 hours. But early on Sunday morning, events were set in train which would amaze everyone and change the course of human history. Of course, probably all of us here this morning know how the story ends. The Good Friday is followed by Easter Sunday. It's hard for us to appreciate the utter astonishment of those who experienced the events of the first Easter. For the resurrection of Jesus was the last thing, the least thing they expected. And this morning, briefly and simply, I want to focus on that element of the unexpected. I've chosen the title, Easter Surprise. And I want to look at the events in the Gospel account written by John, one of the first eyewitnesses that was read for us so well by the children this morning. If you have a Bible, it will help to turn to it. John 20, verses 1 to 18. There are Bibles in the pews. Just reach around and get one if you don't have one. It's page 1089. And let's trace the story together this morning. And the story begins early on Sunday morning with an empty tomb on what we can first of all call the missing man, verses 1 to 9. Each of the four gospel accounts of the Easter story gives us different information with different emphases. However, as one writer puts it, the differences between the gospels amount to no more than the demonstration that in them we have the spontaneous evidence of witnesses not the stereotype repetition of an official story. So while we learn from the other Gospels 
that several women were the first to arrive on the scene, John focuses on this one particular woman, Mary of Magdala, commonly called Mary Magdalene. Magdala was a small village on the western shore of the Lake of Galilee, a few miles north of Tiberias. Mary and several other women had travelled with Jesus and his disciples. Luke tells us in his Gospel that they had helped to support them out of their own means. These women had been present at the crucifixion of Jesus. And at least two of them, Mary Magdalene and another woman also called Mary, had seen his body laid in the tomb and the stone rolled against the entrance. The preparation for the body for burial had been carried out in haste. It was almost sundown. Time for Sabbath, and a special Sabbath at that, the one preceding the great feast of the Passover. And now at the earliest possible time, after the Sabbath, which concluded of course on Saturday evening when the sun went down, at first light the next morning, Mary and her friends returned, carrying spices with them to complete the burial preparations. It's quite remarkable that a woman should be the first person to meet the risen Christ. In first century Israel, women had no legal status whatsoever. You needed the witness of two men in court for it to stand any chance of being accepted. Another sign of the authenticity of this account, if you were making this up, you certainly wouldn't have a woman first on the scene. However, such a thing was the furthest thing from Mary's mind. As Mark tells us in his account, en route to the tomb, the women had only one question on their minds. Who's going to roll this big stone away from the tomb? But when Mary arrives on the scene, she discovers their worries were unnecessary. The stone has been removed. Where the soldiers are, we don't know. Maybe they have run away in haste, in fear. Here's the first piece of evidence. Evidence at the scene, the stone removed. Must have been a frightening and disturbing scene as Mary arrives. It's probably half light. She peers through the gloom, sees the stone removed. And no wonder she turns and runs away to inform Simon, Peter and John, the author of the Gospel, here described as the one whom Jesus loved. Her first thoughts are not resurrection, but robbery. Grave robbery was not uncommon in the first century. In fact, a few years after this, the Roman Emperor Claudius made it a capital offence under Roman law to even break the seal on a tomb let alone steal the body. So it's not surprising that Mary's first thought, as she reports to Peter and John, is that the body has been stolen. Verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and John set out to the tomb to find out what has happened. Increasing anxiety, they break into a run. John arrives on the scene first. Whether because he was younger than Peter and fitter, or whether he was just a faster runner, we don't know. But while he only bends down and looks into the tomb, the more impulsive Peter pushes past him and enters the cave hewn out of the rock. Now, notice that the Gospel writers record very carefully the detailed evidence of what they found. The strips of linen which had been wrapped around the body and the sweatband which had been wrapped around his head were now folded up neatly and placed separately. Some people have thought that this indicated that the resurrected body of Jesus 
simply pass through the grave clothes, leaving them in the shape of a body. That is not what the text says or means. It means an orderly departure from the scene. The clothes carefully wrapped, placed where they were. Orderly departure. It's a great contrast. If you know the story in John's Gospel earlier, just a few days previously, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the grave. He called him to come out and Lazarus had emerged from the tomb and he got all the grave clothes wrapped around him. And Jesus had said, loose him and let him go. In this case, that's not necessary. Now this, of course, knocks the head on any theory about grave robbery. Either they would have taken the body, wrapped in the cloth, it would have been very difficult to unwind it from the sticky spices that bound it, or they would have taken the expensive cloth and the far more valuable spices and left the body. But here we have the exact opposite. The cloth and spices left, but nobody, a missing man. Now the question is, of course, for us and for those on the scene, what did it mean? Faced with these pieces of evidence, the stone removed, the grave clothes folded, the body gone, what conclusion would these eyewitnesses reach? John tells us in his account, very interestingly, the other disciple, that's John himself, also went inside. Then he adds in verse 8, he saw and he believed. The evidence, and indeed all the events of this remarkable day, are meant to demonstrate that something unique, incredible in human history has happened. That the man who was crucified, dead, buried, has risen from the dead. The stone is, of course, not rolled away from the tomb in order to let the body out, as though Jesus were trapped inside. We know from other resurrection appearances, his body had a different characteristic. He could move through doors and solid walls. No, the stone is rolled away by means of an earthquake by God in order to demonstrate, as the angels later announce, he is not here, he has raised. He is risen. Christ is risen. Now, all the evidence of the Gospel accounts points to this one simple, yet vitally important fact, the physical resurrection of the body of Jesus. Almost every year in recent times, so thankfully not this year, I've not noticed it this year yet, someone says, usually a cleric sadly, that it doesn't matter if the bones of Jesus are still lying rotting in the dust somewhere in Palestine, what matters is the spiritual message of Easter. But if there is no resurrection of the body at Easter, then there is no message at Easter. There is no hope. The Apostle Paul, some 30 years after this, writing to the Christians in Corinth, for this story was already making the rounds, writes to them, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 20. Now this is the most crucial piece of evidence upon which the Christian faith stands or falls. And the critics of Christianity know this. What is most interesting, if you look through past history, is the number of people who set out to prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead and on consideration of the evidence have come to the conclusion that he really did. 
One of the most famous was a young lawyer named Frank Morrison. He looked at the evidence and it was so compelling that he wrote a book called, it's still in print, called Who Moved the Stone? And the first chapter is entitled The Book That Refused to Be Written for he concluded that the resurrection was not a fiction but a fact. Now can I simply say this morning if you are not a Christian then I invite you to look at the evidence examine the facts before you jump to your conclusion that this is some kind of fairy story. This is the first reason to believe that Jesus rose from the grave, the missing man, evidence from the empty tomb. However, not all the first witnesses of the Easter event came to this conclusion immediately or understood everything very clearly. Even John, the disciple who writes in verse 8 that he saw and believed, then adds, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. As for Mary Magdalene, she didn't believe or understand. Instead, arriving back on the scene, after the two disciples have left, or remaining there alone while they return home, we see the second person in the story. First, the missing man. Notice, secondly, in verses 10 to 16, the weeping woman. Look again at verse 11. It tells us that Mary stood outside the tomb crying. There are several words in Greek for crying. When you read this, you sort of suspect it's the kind of crying, you know, where someone stands, stands discreetly dabbing the corner of their eye with a handkerchief. But the word used here is a really strong word. It's the word of a loud and desolate expression of grief. In fact, we could probably call it the wailing woman. Why was she so heartbroken? Well, the simple yet profound answer is because of what Jesus meant to her. The Gospels tell us, Mark tells us in Mark 16, that Jesus had driven seven demons out of this woman. Many people today in the West especially claim the devil is a myth and that demon possession is simply a medical condition. But that is not the diagnosis of the New Testament or of Jesus, nor is that the experience of people who are still afflicted in this way today. Mary of Magdala was such a person. Her life had been blighted by the powers of evil and then she'd met Jesus Christ. And he'd cast out these demonic powers out of her life. She'd been set free and she lived to love and serve Jesus Christ. So no wonder her heart was broken when his heart was pierced on the cross. His dead body taken and laid down in a tomb. No wonder her outpouring of grief when she comes to give her final condolences and to prepare the body, she discovers there is nobody there. Even his body has been taken. No wonder she wails out loud and cries and weeps. However, such grief is unnecessary, though Mary doesn't yet realise it. And in order to help her understand this, she's asked the same question twice. Did you notice that in the reading? And she's given the same answer twice. Look at the repeated question. Wailing in grief, she bends down to look into the tomb and sees through her tears, verse 12, two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. Whether she realises who they are is not clear, but she does understand their language. They speak in the tongues of men, not of angels. So the angels ask, Woman, why are you crying? Verse 13. The form of address, it sounds rather impolite in English, or rather harsh, woman. 
it's actually quite a, a gentle way of respect to a woman, a gentle query. Mary's grief is unnecessary. There's no reason for her tears, but rather than rebuke her for a lack of understanding, the question helps her to articulate the reasons why she's so upset. And similarly, shortly afterwards, she's asked the same question again by someone she assumes to be the gardener who she notices standing nearby. The tomb was in a garden or plantation or estate. Woman, he said, verse 15, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Now, the two questions are meant to elicit her answer and to show that she has jumped to the wrong conclusion. She answers the angels, verse 13, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And to the man she assumes is the gardener, she says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. She's not recognised that the one whose body she is seeking is in fact speaking to her, the living Lord Jesus. We don't know exactly why she didn't recognise him. There are other gospel accounts of people to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection, whom God somehow prevented from recognising him immediately. Maybe she just couldn't recognise him through the tears, but maybe most of all, it was so totally inconceivable that it never even crossed her mind it might be Jesus. Until Jesus speaks one word to her, as he addresses her by name. Notice the astonished recognition. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. This is a, a mother tongue conversation. Jesus says to her, he uses her Aramaic mother tongue name, he says, Mariam. And astonished, she turns and says, Rabboni, which John tells us means teacher, a term of respect. Now, there are two kinds of evidence now which convince us that Jesus is risen from the dead. One is the facts, the evidence of the empty tomb, and so on. The other is the evidence of personal eyewitnesses to the event who have met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Mary's life was transformed by this personal encounter with Jesus. Her weeping turned to rejoicing. And so it was with the disciples who were downcast, discouraged, fearful. When Jesus appeared to them, their lives were turned round, they were transformed, and they were even willing to be killed for the name of Jesus. Now, some people claim, all oh, this was all a hoax invented by the disciples. It's an amazing hoax if you're going to believe it enough to die for it. Surely this is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence, the truth of the Easter story. At the end of this chapter, which is really the end of John's Gospel, other than a little prologue story, a wonderful story in chapter 21, John explains why he's written this Gospel. Verse 30 and 31. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But, but I've written these, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now you may ask, okay, that's the evidence from way back. How is this possible? How can you receive life through Jesus? Some 2,000 years after the first Easter. After all, is it not true that no one meets Jesus in the same way today that Mary did, or John and Peter and the other disciples? The answer to this is seen in the words which Jesus speaks to Mary, which are very important words. Not easy to understand. Notice then the third and final feature of this story. The missing man, the weeping woman, 
And thirdly and finally, in verses 17 to 18, the living Lord. Matthew tells us in his Gospel account that the women who met Jesus clasped his feet and worshipped him. It's clear from the words of Jesus to Mary that she does something similar. For notice what he says to her, do not hold on to me. The words do not hold on to me, rather than the older version, the authorised version says, touch me not, convey what Jesus says to Mary. There is nothing wrong with touching Jesus. In fact, you discover that doubting Thomas is invited to touch Jesus as a proof that he really is raised from the dead with, a, with a, a new kind of body, not a ghost. No, Mary is urged not to hold on to Jesus, not to cling to Jesus. After seemingly losing him to a terrible death, after all the trauma of wondering what has happened to his body, she must have been tempted never to let him out of her sight again. But Jesus says she must not try to hold on to him, for she will not be able to hold on to him, for he is returning, or the word is much stronger than in our translation, she is, he, Jesus is ascending to God the Father in heaven. Now look at verse 17, which is a very important verse. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned or ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending, returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now think of this from Mary's perspective. This must have seemed even more bad or sad news. First they lose him through death. Now they will lose him through his departure to heaven. But there is a world of difference between the two losses. The first ended in death, but the second ends in life. For Jesus is not a dead man. He is now a living Lord, risen from the grave, and he is about to ascend and return into heaven, the place of highest authority. <coughs> so why is it good news and not bad news or sad news? Well, the answer is when what Jesus says to Mary, which she is to tell to the other disciples, which we are meant to learn as well. When Jesus finally ascends into heaven, he'll be seated at God's right hand, the place of highest authority. And from that place of victory, the living Lord, the ascended Jesus, will be able to bring his followers into the family of God into a restored relationship with himself and with his father, son and father. Did you see the two themes there? Good news, a new relationship with God the Son. First of all, he speaks about my brothers. Tells Mary, go and tell my brothers. Now, on normal reading you might think this was his physical brothers, but Mary clearly takes it to mean his disciples. And the book of Hebrews says that one, New Testament book of Hebrews says, one of the reasons why Jesus was raised and exalted, was to bring men and women into God's family. Hebrews 2 says this, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, ascended, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He suffered for us. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now notice what he says in verse 11. This is Hebrews 2. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. It's kind of a unique verse in the New Testament. But it's a wonderful thought. It says again, 
the one who makes men holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, those who put their trust in him, who died for them, belong to the same family. And Jesus says of those people, he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Sometimes in our families we maybe do things and uh, our families are a bit ashamed of what we might do or pretend that they don't belong to us or belong to our family. But he's a wonderful thing that God brings people into his family and he says if you and me, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, here's a wonderful thought, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. That's not to do with a male privilege, how could it be when he's speaking to a woman witness? It's to do with inheritance. It's to do with family rights. It's to do with belonging to God's family. God brings us into this new relationship with himself through the risen Lord Jesus Christ so that we're called his brothers. We're members of his family. And not only that, we come into a new relationship with God the Father. Jesus says, I'm returning now to my Father, the one he was always in intimate relationship with, but he is now your Father, to my God and your God. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus means that God has declared that the sacrifice of Jesus is finally accepted for all people who put their trust in him. Now we can be reconciled with God, brought into his family, and that relationship with Jesus enjoyed by nature becomes ours by adoption and grace. So that you can call God your father. You can have that intimate relationship with him. Why? Because Jesus has now ascended. He's at the place of authority. So that when we come to God in prayer, we come to God through Jesus Christ. And if you and I were to approach the throne of God in all his holiness, we would be barred at the gates. We would be thrown out. But there is someone who speaks on our behalf. Jesus Christ. He says, this one is mine. This is my brother. This is my sister. And we approach God and we call him Abba, Father. But you say, well, that was all right for Mary and those disciples. It was a wonderful personal, intimate experience. Have we lost out? Because Jesus has now returned to heaven. Not at all. This is the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus said to his disciples, it's a good thing that I go back to heaven. Why? Because I'm going to send someone else like me the Holy Spirit who will be with you and will be in you. And from then on we know a relationship with God and with Jesus which is not a physical relationship it is a spiritual intimate relationship. So the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Rome and of all Christians in all times and places for you did not receive a spirit that makes you again a slave to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. There is a relationship with God, which when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive life in his name, and you know deep within, in fact it's almost impossible to describe unless you've experienced it. A person from the part of England that I come from once said, it's better felt than felt. <laughs> but if you're a Christian, you'll know what it's about. It's that warmth of heart. 
It's that intimate relationship with God and with Jesus that is not just something theoretical, not just purely theological to do with the facts, important though they are. It is that intimate personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. His spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And that is why this is good news to be shared. Mary Magdalene went with the, to the disciples with the news. She said, I've seen the Lord. My personal experience. Now this is what Jesus told me that he told me to tell you. He's ascending to heaven. And he's going to bring us into God's family. So she shared it with them. They shared it with their generation. And down the generations. And this good news is shared with us today at this Easter time. This is the third piece of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. The empty tomb. The eyewitness accounts. And finally, the evidence of personal experience. Let me say something in conclusion, very briefly. Let me ask you two personal questions. These are questions which the risen Lord Jesus asked Mary on that first Easter. Let me suggest that he asked the same questions to us this morning. Question one. Why are you crying? Now, you may not be literally crying this morning. But maybe you feel like crying if truth were told. Maybe your heart is filled with sadness this morning. Maybe like Mary, you've lost someone that you love dearly. Maybe your hopes in life have been dashed. Or maybe you've reached that point in your experience, which many of us do after a certain age, where you begin to wonder, is this all life is? That you live these years, then you die, and you're forgotten and that's all there is to life. So the question, why are you crying? There was no real reason for Mary to cry, for if she'd only realised it, the one who asked the question was there to bring hope to her. And God the Holy Spirit asked us the question this morning, why are you crying? Because he also wants to offer us hope. But you need to answer the second question as well that Jesus asked Mary. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Maybe all your life you've been looking for that one person who can give you your life meaning. That one person who will truly love you and appreciate you for who you are. Maybe you've been disappointed. Maybe that person has let you down. Maybe it's been taken from you. Maybe you're still looking for that person and hoping to meet that someone special. But no human being can ever meet that deepest need in your life. Only Jesus Christ is able to do that. And this morning he asks, who are you looking for? And I simply want to say to you this morning, if you are seeking Christ, he's actually there waiting ready to reveal himself to you, ready to speak to you personally by name, in your own language. Jesus said of himself, he's the good shepherd, he calls his sheep by name. He's the one who's risen and ascended. He's not ashamed to call you his brother, his sister. He can make you a child of God so that you can call God your father. That is the message of Easter. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for?
Maybe today for you could be your Easter surprise. Let's pray together.